0: Curse.
1: Welcome to Speak and Destroy episode 7. I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about all things Metallica. Megaforce Records, the independent label run by the husband and wife team of John and Marsha Zazula, gave us Kill 'Em All and Ride the Lightning. During the Ride the Lightning album cycle, a major label came along and provided Metallica with the resources, the marketing, the radio promotion, the visibility, and everything else that came along with a major record label in the early to mid 1980s. That label was Elektra Records, And that A&R executive who signed Metallica to Elektra Records was named Michael Alago. Michael Ilago is the subject of a new documentary called Who the Fuck Is That Guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago," And he is also our guest on this episode of Speak and Destroy.
2: All of a sudden, this important little cassette came across my desk.
1: You know, I'm so glad that Alago showed up (laughs) to see us live. You know, Michael Ilago
2: was... An outsider in a mainstream kind of environment. And we always considered ourselves to be outsiders in a sort of potentially you know mainstream environment. You could argue that we were perfect for each other, you know?
1: In the documentary, which was directed by a guy named Drew Stone, you learn a lot about Michael's childhood and teenage years, running around going crazy, going to every show that he could in the late 70s in New York City, seeing so many important bands in the worlds of rock and roll and the punk and hardcore movements, and living life and discovering himself as a gay Puerto Rican in the punk and metal scenes. In the documentary, you'll see pictures of Michael hanging out with Johnny Rotten, Bruce Springsteen, Ronnie James Dio, Bono. You'll hear all about how he worked at the Ritz famous club prior to getting his job at electra after electra he was at geffen then he was back at electra during his career as a major label executive michael not only signed metallica he also signed white zombie he worked with metal church nina simone public image limited cindy Lauper, tracy chapman alan vega the resurrection era misfits Dawkin, swans and jason newstead's old band flotsam and jetsam Come into some very brief contact with michael over the years but i got to know him a little bit better just a couple of years ago when he was managing the band Bloodclot, which features john joseph from the Mags, together with some former and current members of danzig queens of the stone age and monster magnet Bloodclot made a record with zeus who is one of my producer clients and of course very good friends and so through that process of making that record and working out the budget and things like that i spoke to michael quite a bit and every time i got him on the phone as soon as we were done with the business portion, I was like, okay, now it's Metallica time. I have a million questions. He's fun. He's energetic. He's intensely charismatic. I think you'll enjoy this conversation. Just before we jump into it, I want to remind you that we are giving away a Kill 'Em All Collector's Edition box set. As soon as we hit 100 reviews on iTunes, we're going to pick somebody whose reviews Speak and destroy, and we're going to send you that Kill 'Em All Collector's box set. Michael recently appeared on the Beats 1 radio show It's Electric, which is hosted by Lars Ulrich, who plays drums in some band. Here is a very small snippet of that conversation.
2: There was this perception that the corporate world of the music business was all these... Suits. Yes, suits and these f***ed up people, but all the people we met in your world were people we could connect with, relate to, and that became friends of ours, mm-hmm. and that were all part of this journey together. You know, the beauty of Electra back then as well was it was a major label run like a boutique label. We had very special artists. And never mind just the special artists, the people that were out in the field were definitely not suits. They were all specifically hired because of their love for music. Right. And I think that's why we all connected, because... Yes, of course they have to do their corporate job out there in the field, but it never felt that way. They were really cool people who
1: loved music and loved their jobs. So there were really no suits out there. Here it is, my conversation with Michael Alago, the AR executive who signed Metallica to Electra Records. This is Speak and Destroy. <laughs>
2: Out of the blue one day, Drew called me. We remembered each other from 1997 when I had just put out American Psycho uh, by The Misfit. He was managing a little band called Sub-Zero. Fabulous band, by By the the way. way, Basil Uh,
1: Basil Go-Go's, rest in peace. uh, Oh, my God. Just the other day. Yeah. Rest in peace. Yeah, speaking of American Psycho.
2: Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, so uh, it's 1997. Uh, Misfits are going to Spain. Uh, Drew asks, uh, can my band support the Misfits? Uh, Jerry only says yes. Uh, So I wind up going to Spain. Drew winds up going to Spain. We meet each other there. And all I ever remember from 1997 in Europe with Misfits and Sub-Zero was a lot of drinking and a lot of fighting. So fast forward to around, I don't know, 2000. Fourteen or so. Uh, Drew calls me out of the blue. I remember him. He obviously remembers me. And he says that he thinks my life is very interesting and he'd like to speak to me. We had a lunch. I thought it sounded interesting. (laughs) Uh, He is also a person who just loves music, how I love music. And uh, then my ego took over a little bit and I said, sure, let's make the movie. So we started way over three years or so ago, uh, 2017. The movie's out. It's on Amazon, iTunes. September 1st, it started on uh, Netflix. Mm -hmm. And that kind of blew the whole thing up. That's where I watched it. Just the other day, yeah, just the other day, between two posts that I made online, I must have gotten 800 messages from young people, and maybe not so young people all over the world, uh, Italy, Spain, France, London, Austria, uh, like Krakow, uh, like all over that, you know, everybody saw it on Netflix. And, you know, the wild part about it is that everybody had a different takeaway. You know, my takeaway is, uh, if you ask me, is that, uh, follow your dream, be honest, pay attention to your life, and anything can happen. Nothing's perfect. You may not get everything you want, but a version of that dream will happen, and that version will be the thing that you just needed the most. So all these people, they either write and say, you know, All of those acts that you signed or produced informed my listening as a younger person. Or they just simply say, if it wasn't for you, we all would have never heard Metallica, which is a little extreme because they were on their way. But I helped get them there, you know. And uh, the other day I got an email from a guy in Colombia who is young, gay, HIV positive, And he said, in our Hispanic household, if I ever, ever said any of that stuff to my parents, they would kick me out. So, of course, I had to write him more than thanks for watching the film. You know, I don't know. I just made some suggestions to him and glad that he was 21 and could be out on his own soon and be the person that he really wants to be. And, you know, the heck with if people don't accept you, because, you know, I guess it's part of the human condition that people talk about you, whether you're black, you're white, you're fat, you're skinny, you're homeless, you have money, you don't have money, you know, whatever. So one just always just has to be who they are. And when you're honest with yourself and you are who you are, you just uh, get by in the world, I guess, a little easier with less struggle. Anyway, I'm sure I just went off on a tangent, but...
1: No, I, I think, think that's a tangent a that's representative not only of you but of the type of artists that you gravitated towards and and all oh, the relationships with. I think yes. um my big takeaway from watching the documentary it really reinforced and validated something that I've learned and held on to from a couple of mentors that I've had in the in the music business that it really at the end of the day is about integrity and honesty and authenticity and about relationships. Because for all of the, oh, yes. the power players that you hear about that throw weight around and that have these stories about being these big ball busters, what I really took away and was reminded of watching your documentary, and I'm going to embarrass you a little bit. Please do. Is everyone likes you. You have a oh, great well, reputation. You. People think of you as kind, sweet, hardworking, excited, motivated, passionate. And these are the ways at the end of the day that I think all of us should strive to be to be thought of that way you know mm-hmm. i I, w- I wouldn't want to you know for all the success in the world to be remembered as someone that man that guy was a real jerk he was real terrible to be around oh, yeah. but he accomplished oh, all yeah. this stuff wouldn't you rather people come away with oh. an impression about having a, a positive oh, impact in their life absolutely you
2: know, you know- since I got uh, clean and sober 10 years ago, uh, you know, I'm, I'm clearer than ever. I'm amazed that I did my job for 24 years as well <laughs> as I did my job. But, uh, you know, I always showed up for the artist. And I just tried to be the best person that I could be. And I'm open and, uh, you know, I could talk to anybody about anything So I think what the artists appreciated is that I was uh, an open book. They could say anything to me. I could say anything to them. And it's wild how I'll just call out John Lydon. I've been friends with John personally and professionally for 36 years. Wow. And. We met when I did that disastrous Public Image Limited show in 1981
1: at the Ritz. One of my favorite parts of the documentary.
2: Absolutely. I signed him to Elektra in 1985. I had to drop him in 1986. He blames it it all on Metallica. He's like, you got that heavy metal band and you didn't want me in your life anymore. Jokingly, not jokingly, but you know, we have never had a bad word with each other.
1: And for someone a... who's such a uh, re- reputedly volatile personality, who, uh, you uh-huh. know, yes. berating Kurt Loder on the air and, and all the fun things that he's done over the years. God bless him, by the way. Of course, I, oh, love, absolutely. I love Johnny Rotten, and both bands have been very Well, I important always to me. tell
2: people, you know, He ain't so rotten after all. (laughs) You know what? He's smart and he's loving and a caring human being. And he just calls you out on stuff, especially if you ask him stupid things. Yes. Um, But, you know, like I said, um, it's a blessing that I have this connection with all those people.
1: Yeah. To be thought of in such high regard by someone like him says a lot because he's clearly very discerning and doesn't suffer fools lightly. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, th- I think that butter commercial he did was one of the most punk rock things ever. Do I buy Country Life butter because it's British? Do I buy Country Life because I yearn for the British countryside?
2: <laughs> or because it's made only from British milk? I buy country life cuz I think it tastes the best. Oh, hysterical. <laughs> just upset John so much. You know what? John just does what he wants. He's yeah. amazing and I will uh I love and respect him so much.
1: And it, it's anyway. it's it's exciting to me, you know, it's very invigorating the way that the is cut together. I feel that it it really demonstrates just that energy that you had and that excitement that you had as a young kid getting on the train and going to all of these shows. It's such an important time in music, um, but to just constantly be out and to be discovering who you were as a person simultaneously and Mm -hmm. just embracing life so fully. And to see that uh, here we are in 2017 and my impression of you, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you're the same guy, you know, you're still uh, excited and motivated and, and a people person and, and, you know, maintaining these great relationships with all of these people, and I just, I got, I got to ask you, how do you, how do you have so much energy? <laughs> how have you always I had so much
2: energy? I, I, you know what? I have no idea. It's just this thing. I have energy. I like to get stuff done. I love to go out and hear and see artists perform. Whether that's, um, you know, whether that's seeing art in a gallery space, whether that's hearing. Uh, a singer-songwriter or musical group in a concert setting uh, or a club. I I, I just, you know, I can't even tell you how far back when one says, oh, I love music, I I guess I came out of the womb loving music. And uh, that's never, ever changed, ever. And I'm as passionate, if not more passionate, about the things I love these days because, you know, It's so few and far between for me that I get to hear a lot of new things that I love, you know, and um, like right now I'm listening to the Black Anvil CD, As Was, Mm -hmm. and I'm listening to the new Venom Inc. record, Ave, and they are both absolutely killing records. And I'm glad I feel that way about them. And I'm glad that they've made such punk rock records, Mm -hmm. even though they're heavy black metal records. There's punk rock in there. Oh, yeah. The whole attitude, you know. So um, I don't know. I just have energy. I love life. I'm glad I'm alive. I'm glad I'm healthy. And um, I will forever be out there seeing people and hearing music until I'm six feet under, I guess
1: well I, I and then I'll
2: and then I'll be up in the heavens and I'll be an angel <laughs> <laughs> and I will look down upon everybody and just uh,
1: be I don't know I don't know where I'm going no, with this we're we're, just, gonna, uh... we're gonna hear you in the grooves of the the legacy you've left behind with all these records that have your fingerprints on them. There well, you let's, go. Okay. But let's Thank let's you. save maudlin and melancholy for the end of the interview. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> but um,
2: hopefully we won't. Hopefully we won't have to go there. Yeah,
1: I'm going to squeeze. Okay. You, I'm going to squeeze you for all your Metallica stories, as many as I can muster in, in an hour or so. Oh, but what a first, pain in the
2: ass you are!
1: But first, I wanna I want to talk kidding. about the Dead Boys. And that was, uh, yes. you know, as someone who is a consummate fan myself and sort of was able to fight tooth and nail and claw and scratch to make fandom into a career, um, mm-hmm. you know, you, you have that same sort of genesis. Uh, you were a Dead yeah. Boys fan, right? Let's, let's talk about that oh, fandom yeah. and how that uh, developed into a profession. Mm, mm, mm,
2: mm. Okay, uh, let's see. Um, I'm guessing it's around 1976. I must be 16 years old. I'm going out every night in New York City to all the clubs. I remember hearing about the Dead Boys. I'm not sure if I saw them before their young, loud, and snotty release came out on Sire Records, or maybe it was simultaneously. Uh, I remember there was a weekend where they opened up for The Damned at CBGB, uh, and it was the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. And, you know, I always say like Steve was the bastard child of Iggy pop with all those insane onstage antics that you can hear about and see in the documentary yes. about oh, yes. me. So, um, My friend Jody Ribello and I were photographers back then, and we would share and trade pictures of the Dead Boys and then decided we were going to do a little something more, so we put a little zine together called All This and More and sent it out to tons of people, whoever wanted it. Uh, We didn't do much after that. We were young kids, and we were just crazy and going out, so we didn't have that kind of discipline, but we loved the Dead Boys. And funny enough, this Sunday that you and I are speaking on a reformed Dead Boys are playing tonight at the Bowery Electric in New wow. York City. Wow! Yeah, I know. Strange. And will, and will you be there? I'm going. I'm now running. Of course yes, you are. I want to see Johnny Blitz and I want to see Cheetah Chrome and yeah. Cheetah's in my movie and I yeah. appreciate that. And uh, so, yeah, I was just—I've um, always been a fan, even when I was a record executive. Just that doesn't leave you. I just, you know, I love music and I think I got the jobs that I got because I was such a fan and I knew about a variety of music from the Great American Songbook to hard rock and heavy metal. And um, I just applied everything I knew into a and like I don't you, know if that answers
1: your question. No, it absolutely does because it, I, I think it's an important thing about a lot of creative people that I end up in these conversations with somewhere where the line between artist and audience starts to blur where you're, where you're so in love with something and you're so passionate about it that you want to be involved. It's not just enough to experience it. You Mm -hmm. need to, you need to help. You need to get your hands around it and and move it forward.
2: Absolutely. You know, as an A&R executive, whether a young A&R executive, an older A&R executive, you know, every day, I was listening to demo tapes, demo tapes that bands, lawyers, managers, friends of friends gave me. Most of the time it was cassettes, <laughs> and it was in 1983. Cassettes, um, and you know I heard
0: lots and
2: lots of real good things, but good ain't great. And so, you know, you can't spend your life signing good things. So I kind of feel that I only signed A&R, executive produced artists that really always had something to say, whether that was Nina Simone, Mm -hmm. who was part of the civil rights movement back in the 60s. You know, this is a woman who could take a Bob Dylan song a George Harrison song, turn it on its head, make it her own, and you would think she wrote it. And then, of course, there's my love for James Hetfield and the boys, the, the grown men in Metallica. You know, uh, I, I, to this day, I think the absolute world of them. I think they've only gotten better with time. Um, I think the new album, Hardwired to Self-Destruct, is a killer record mm-hmm. and there are shades of all of their older records earlier records in that release it's fabulous it's fabulous yeah. and here we are 35 years later talking about them they're playing stadiums still mm-hmm. and you know what i just i just saw it's them a, at the rose
1: bowl it's a, <laughs> a couple ago. it's a
2: it's a blessing and you know they are people who are grateful to be where they still are today
1: Mm-hmm. And I think that speaks a lot to one of the themes that's developing in this discussion is that reputation and relationships and how you treat people. You know, they've, they're have they the Absolutely. biggest biggest metal band in the world and they're always gracious and kind to other bands mm-hmm. and the acts they take out on tour and, Absolutely. and how they represent for people. And, and, you know, and you can't go to a Metallica show without hearing them you know giving thanks and praise to not only that old metallica family but to all the people who've been with them from the beginning yeah it's funny what a
2: different animal they are uh now than they were in 1983 when you know everyone was calling them alcoholica
0: Everyone was calling us Alcoholica. We'd go into town and you know I'd hear people screaming,
1: Alcoholica.
0: The name just stuck. <laughs>
1: Cause if you don't start drinking, I'm gonna leave. We were proud of that. We're living the rock and roll dream, and we can drink more than you. For the most part, the
0: booze just fueled those first few shows and then started fueling those first few
1: tours. We had to drink before we went on stage. Getting warmed up. I remember being fearful one night. Oh, I'm not drunk. What do you mean we're going on in 10 minutes? Oh, shit, you know, trying to drink as much as possible. It's just crazy.
0: I just want to say cheers to all you guys. And thanks for coming down and getting nutty with us, man. Cheers. I mean, it got to the point where someone gave me a live tape. And I was like, oh, my god. That's us. That doesn't even sound like us. No.
1: We were out to drink and destroy. We'd come out of clubs at 7 in the morning. People are off on their way to work. We're jumping on the hoods of their cars at stop signs.
0: Go to work. The kind of stuff that we were doing, just probably shouldn't be talking about on family television.
1: Shooting guns off at hotels, you know, in the middle of Hollywood. It also involved a lot of other things, like uh, partaking the odd
0: uh, female. Uh-huh. And,
2: you know, it was a different energy back then. It was a certain youthful insane uh, i don't know if you would say unbridled energy that kicked people's butt they yeah. still do that today it's just a different energy you know the playing is more mature the performances are are, are just so
1: top-notch
2: that um that's why they still are
1: where they are today so what was that first encounter? How did Metallica enter the life of Michael Alago? Oh, gosh. And vice it, you versa? Know, it's,
2: it, it's almost like a bit of a long story. Uh, that's that's what best. we do
1: here in podcast land. Okay, great.
2: So, um, <laughs> I stopped my job at the beginning of 1983 at some point, early 1983. Um, a colleague now of mine, John Zazula and yes. his wife, Marsha, who were running Megaforce Records. They knew about this young A&R person at Electra, That's me. They decided to send me a box of records. I get the box of records. I think uh, I, I it's just a ton of stuff in there. And uh, Kill'em All was in there. Uh, but at the time, John said to me, Michael, I have this band that are going to be huge. And we can't afford... To get them there. Uh, And they're called Raven. Oh, for one. said okay i listened uh i think i listened to their album and uh kill them all for one
1: right that was the tour (laughs) yeah
2: right it was anthrax raven and metallica anyway so it's early 1983 i say to john well you know what let's do a demo with raven if you want him on electra i gave him five grand or so they gave me back five songs the songs were stellar I love the Gallagher brothers. I'm crazy about Wacko, who used to put me over his shoulder and carry me back to my hotel whenever I was drunk. Um, they delivered s- superb product, but it was a little too traditional for me. My tastes have always been a little to the left. I heard Kill 'Em All and basically lost my mind. I go out to, I quietly go out to the Stone in San Francisco, maybe only two or three months after. I started at Electra. I'm a young a person. I still have no idea what I'm doing, uh, except that I'm going to see bands and I'm out every night and I have a corporate card. And my <laughs> assistant, to- my assistant Tony, she's back at the office at 75 Rock. And she's just, we get all the, uh, the music newspapers from the United States, from the UK, from Germany, from Japan, from Canada. And we just cut out stuff that sounds interesting. And then we just start contacting everybody that's how i did a oh. um, like, and r
1: like course... you you created an internet when there wasn't one <laughs> Oh, absolutely yeah. Yeah, yeah
2: yeah 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 so i quietly go see them at the stone in san francisco i think it was the last time mustaine was with them blew my mind blew my mind never saw anything like it and as we know back then in 83 no one else was doing what they were doing Everything else was all the stuff that we were growing up with, like a black Sabbath and a Ju- Judas priest and an iron maiden and all that stuff. That stuff was extraordinary, but you know, I would say in retrospect, very traditional. Mm-hmm. Now here you come, these have here come these young people who are insane on stage. It's wild. It's a, it's a combination of, um, uh, Traditional heavy metal, classic rock, punk rock. uh, I think what Malcolm Dome at Kerrang! coined thrash metal. Mm -hmm. Um, So they combined all these things to make up what we call Metallica. And I was blown away. I thought from the get-go... James Hetfield was an extraordinary ringleader on stage. He had the, for me, he had the greatest smile in the whole world. I tell people that and they think, oh yeah, 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 Lago is crazy, but it's the truth. I love James. I always love James. I love them all. Um, uh, uh, uh. So I saw them there and when it was over, I gave, Lars doesn't remember this and I vaguely remember this. I gave him my business card. I said, I work for Electra. Yes, I know you're on a label. Take my card. So I went back to Electra and I didn't know what to tell anybody about Metallica, to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. So I just went about doing my job. Uh, in the interim, I mean, I mean what doing- I mean,
1: what do you say in a in a corporate environment where, you know, the emphasis is obviously on hits. And this is, this is the early to mid-80s when, I mean, what's on the radio? 83. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, no, no. It
2: certainly wasn't top 40.
1: That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Well, and, it, uh, hard, no, it was no, no, hard no. to say. It was hard to say this is going to be one of the biggest bands of all time. They're, they're going to oh, have please. the biggest album of the SoundScan era. What's SoundScan? It doesn't exist yet.
0: <laughs> hmm <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so That had to have been a so, hard
1: sell. Uh, well, so at some point now, I
2: just go back to New York and um, – I'm still within the first year of my uh, job at Electra, and I just go on doing my job. That's it. I just go on. At some point, Lars called and said, we're coming to New York next summer. We're doing a triple act bill with Raven and Anthrax. Will you come? I said, absolutely, I'm coming. So uh, we can fast forward here uh, because there was not a lot of interaction. Uh, I saw the band at Roseland. It was the the greatest experience of my life. I knew I had to have these people in my life uh, professionally. And, um, you know, anybody who was at that Roseland gig knew that if you could literally blow the roof off of a place, (laughs) they blew the roof off of Roseland. And, uh, you know, that night there was such electricity in the air that they were coming to do this gig. Remember they never had a big gig in New York. You know, they played in Staten Island. They played at Lamore's in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. but I don't think there was ever a big gig. So they were in the, they were sandwiched in the middle between anthrax and Raven. And when they came on stage, I believe they opened up with hit the lights. We can always look that up. And um, people lost their mind people really did they lost their mind and that was the catalyst for me saying oh i'm signing this my friend mitchell who did a in art electra came to the gig my friend martin sexton from the uk was at the gig bob krasnow our our chairman and mike bone our head of radio i didn't pay attention to anybody i threw myself into the crowd with all these young men uh and uh, which i loved And, um, after the show was over, I went right backstage. I bolted the door closed and I said, guys, I love you. I can't take it. You have to sign to Electra. Now we all know there were complications there and we wanted to be, uh, professional, respectful, uh, to Megaforce. And, um, at some point, uh, I'm backtracking just a little bit because I get those demos from Johnny Z. I let him know they're fabulous, but I heard Metallica and I want to sign Metallica. John lost his mind. He had back then and probably still does a very special place for them in his heart. But, Being an independent label like they were, I just felt, and I don't know if it was a little arrogance or not, but I didn't care either. I felt like, you know what? You can't take them to where Electra, who is under the umbrella of Time Warner, can take them. He wanted to sue me, he wanted to sue Electra, he wanted to sue Time Warner. We then got all the lawyers and business affairs people together. They worked it out. I think he wound up making money on the next two or three records in perpetuity. We also used his logo Mm -hmm. next to the Electra logo. Yes. And, you know, life went on. Fast forward uh, August 5th, probably the day after Roseland, the guys come to my office and like they said, they were going to all four of them showed up despite everybody getting wrecked that (laughs) night and including myself. I was going to say, including Um, you. (laughs) Oh, gosh, yes, of course. They come to my office and um, we go to the conference room. I give them like uh, cassettes and vinyl of the Doors, the Stooges, the MC5, our beloved Cliff. Cliff knew about a label that we distributed called Nonsuch, and they yeah. were a bit esoteric. You know, it was like John Lomax the Third field recordings, and that's all Cliff wanted. Oh, and he said, do you have any Simon Garfunkel? I'm like, Cliff, we don't have Simon and Garfunkel. Columbia has Simon and Garfunkel, <laughs> but I'll get you the Greatest Hits album. Yeah. Oh, he was a so hoot. Cool. What a beautiful, lovely human being. Oh, everybody misses him to this day. Anyway, the guys are there. Bob Krasnow comes into the uh, office. And, you know, we can't pretend that Bob was, you know, up, uh, you know probably in his late 40s by then. But we're uh, people in our early 20s. And he comes in and says, you know what? Michael wants you here. We want you here. We're going to work it out. And we worked it out. And, you know, as they say, the rest is history. And what a history it is. You know, that <laughs> signing, if I may say so myself, changed the face of hard rock and heavy metal. It also gave other a and people and labels permission to sign things that yes. were not top 40, that were not traditional classic rock or heavy metal. It was like, then came bands that I love,
0: mm-hmm.
2: Megadeth, Creator uh you know uh, uh, anvil all this stuff that people were signing and i thought it was a beautiful thing because all those other artists uh, voivod whoever i love them all they were, no, nobody was traditional and it, what, what the beauty of all those bands getting signed whether it was to an independent here in the states or a major it opened up more people's ears to hearing things they may not have heard before absolutely I, I don't think I would have discovered. Oh, I'm so tired from that long-winded answer.
1: <laughs> I'm not. I, I just, I just, want, I want more. It's just making me hungry. Okay, that was like an appetizer. Um, okay, good. <laughs> uh, yeah, and certainly had those bands not been, you know, whether it was Megadeth on Capitol, I think Voivod was on IRS or something. It was, yeah. I mean, major labels taking an interest in this in the wake of Metallica's success on Electra. Certainly, Absolutely. you know, for, for me, a kid growing up in the late 80s in indianapolis indiana i wouldn't have been exposed to any of that stuff there was no internet mm-hmm. there was no you know that's mm-hmm. no, that i was discovering that well, i was able to I'm buy sure, those cassettes I'm at sure the mall you know right thanks people to major labels had,
2: we're still handing out flyers they were trading cassettes and i'm sure i uh, i'm guessing but you must have had a favorite record store yes. that you shopped in of perhaps course.
1: Karma Records, well, in Greenwood, how, Indiana. That's how
2: we got our records. You know, here in when I was uh, still living in Brooklyn, early on, I took the train to Bay Parkway and went to E. J. Corvettes. And one of the first, just coincidence, albums that I saw right there on the rack was the first Kiss album. And I thought, oh my god, honey, I better get this record. I think it was three dollars and ninety nine cents. But anyway, the point of all this was back then. We, I went to Titus Oaks, I went to Sounds, I went to Free Being. None of this place exists anymore. Yeah. It's a memory, yeah. a beautiful memory, but darn. Anyway, so we all had our favorite record stores that we could go to and hear our favorite new sounds of things that
1: were coming were up and coming, and, and we had and we had record store clerks who who knew things. I mean, there was uh, they oh honey, they certainly knew things, yeah, absolutely. Like, like, the, it was, it, I mean, the people don't understand the movie High Fidelity, that was a real life for a long time. Oh, um, yes. You know, yeah. I my our local record store. Uh, the punk band Sloppy Seconds were from Indiana, and the dr- <laughs> the drummer from Sloppy Seconds, Steve Sloppy, worked at the Karma Records in Greenwood. And he was a guy of when I was <laughs> when I was a teenager that you know my friends and I would go in and ask him about records, you know, and he would tell us. Uh, you know, I, I remember uh, I had an older brother who turned me on to Hanoi Rocks, and I remember walking into the record store and and asking steve sloppy if they had any hanoi rocks and he said i'll never forget it he goes finally somebody with some fucking taste and he jumps over the counter and like rushes me over to the section where the hanoi rocks records were perfect Um, yeah and and that was you know that's an experience a curation that you would get at a local level that's uh you know not quite
0: quite and you know it's, it's,
1: it's great that michael monroe still out there doing yes. it. Yeah, and he and looks doing the it same, good, and he sounds with the ex- same. He looks yeah.
2: exactly the same, and <laughs> he has an awesome band, yeah. and um, it's just its great. It's wonderful. Still
1: playing the saxophone. I
0: smoked a lot of sky, drank a lot. I can never
1: Your impression early on—you talked a bit about Cliff uh, and a bit about James <laughs> on stage. Um, tell me about each of the four guys as you were mm-hmm. getting to know them. Well,
2: in the early days, yeah. my most of my uh, conversations were with Lars. He was the mouthpiece. Yeah, he was the person who really spoke up for the band. He was—he's so, the, the
1: business guy, you know. And...
2: Absolutely. So, I mean, we try to stay away from the business because now. That they were signed there were lawyers and business affair people to do that so we try to keep everything on both the personal and the creative level and was so, and was q prime involved at this point absolutely they were on board the moment i signed metallica to electra and they've been there ever since mm. um so it was mostly lars that i spoke to you know unfortunately i only saw clips a few times. Uh, remember, I signed them in 84. Unfortunately, he was killed late September of 86. So I saw them when they were on the road. We were all, we always laughed and we always uh, drank. I always used to kid Cliff about his, um, you know, those elephant bell bottoms that he used to wear. <laughs> yeah. He used to tell me to F off and go get me a beer. We laughed our heads off. He was such a lovely, lovely human being. Uh, uh, I don't remember having a lot of contact with Kirk early on but as the years have gone by uh, we text all the time I love seeing him when I'm out on the road so it's it's almost like a very different uh, relationship I have with each of them
1: of course I huh? mean they're, they're each very different personalities you oh, know, <laughs> yeah, which is part of the magic of, of what makes um, them you know, it's like the Beatles. You know,
2: fantastic. Yeah, yeah. absolutely fantastic. And,
1: and and in terms of uh, you know, that support and that spark for other artists. I mean, certainly, you know, I discovered the Dead Kennedys because David Elvenson from Megadeth had a Dead Kennedys sticker on his bass. Stop and, it. And I think we all discovered the Misfits, right? Because I mean, you know, if, you know, and Cliff, of course, had the Cliff had the Crimson Ghost on his arm, and James uh-huh. wore the Sam Hain T shirts and everything. And I mean, that turned generations of us on to. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, so much music and and so many bands. And then it
2: was so great when they did the 590 ADP and recorded Green Hell.
1: Yes, yes. Oh, gosh. (laughs) I mean, and also talking about, I mean, God bless them for paying the mortgages for Hank Sherman and King Diamond and, (laughs) you know. There you go. and all these, you know. I'm sure they they appreciate those publishing checks Mm in 2017. mm -hmm. Um, But I I wanted to, to talk to you then about you know the development then, because was now was ride the lightning out on Megaforce first, and then yes, uh, through, and then reissued through Electra while mm-hmm, it was still mm-hmm. on. Once they record.
2: were signed, they were they were signed to Electra, They were in the middle of making ride the lightning. I heard bits and pieces of it because Lars would send me parts of arrangements on cassettes in the in the mail, which I loved. Yeah. Uh, it did come out on Megaforce first for a few months. I believe it came out on megaforce uh perhaps uh may of let me see let me just make sure here i uh, oh uh yeah i I think it came out on megaforce july of 84 and then it flipped over to electra around november of 84 and then from there on they were really full-on electra records artists
1: yeah ride the lightning you know people don't realize this you know those of us who became fans a little later but you know for all the shit that metallica gets for doing what they want whatever whenever they want however they want people don't realize you know ride the lightning was controversial because it had a ballad you know mm. it, I mean, fade to black's a classic metallica song but at the time oh, it's like you know incredible playing. album like, you
2: know it's funny it could be my favorite record of all time of theirs oh it's mine
1: it's mine, yeah 100 yeah. i love and I you love know, every record wild and that's my favorite
2: you know, it's a wild thing in that, uh, you know, they're you're they are a band that they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. Yeah. It's like, you know, people still go, oh, I only love the first three Metallica records and that's it. Or well, you guess? know what? You can't go on making the same record. Because then also, people would complain you made the same record. So they were always adventurous in their song choices, in their production choices. And like I said, 35 years later, we get hardwired to Mm self-destruct, and it's friggin' brilliant.
1: You know what I mean? I always say, uh, as a fan, and I said this throughout the 90s in the Load and the Reload era, when people would say, you know, oh, if, if Cliff were still here, he would never allow this. And I would always say, like you just said, Cliff was asking for Simon and Garfunkel records. Like, are you Absolutely. Kidding me? He would have been the first. He was the biggest Thin Lizzy fan. He was the, you know, yeah. he, he would have been. the yeah. f- He was the guy doing interviews in the Master of Puppets era saying, I don't want to, you know, we don't want everything doesn't have to be a million miles an hour. But, you know, mm-hmm. he was uh, he was the melody and the soul and the groove. Like, exactly. Kidding, he would have he would have pulled them in that direction sooner, in my opinion. Um, and yes, his spirit clearly is still such a big part of the band.
2: We do what we want to do, you know if they consider that selling out, then uh, whatever. There's a lot of people think you sold out just because you're on a major label and are very popular. or
1: maybe you don't play a thousand
2: miles an hour the whole time or you know I mean we just we'd be doing the same thing if we were still on you know independent label. The basic principles are like the same as they were you know five years ago when we were starting out in the garage just like on a bit higher level, like I said, you know. But, I mean, still the same four idiots, you know, <laughs> trying to stay in tune and stay on time.
1: <laughs> I want to talk to you about Jason Newstead because Michael Alago is also the reason that I discovered Flotsam and Jetsam. Because mm-hmm. no, no Place for Disgrace on Electro was the Flots record that I got first and then went back and got the, the first record on Metal Blade. Uh, um, right, Doomsday for the Deceiver. Yeah, but what a, Metal Blade. you know, I mean, what a leg up for them. Uh, sure. They lose their bass player and band leader and songwriter and everything to Metallica, <laughs> but then they yes. get to deal with Electra records in the process. I mean that, that,
2: um, I think I knew about them because they sent me a care package of doomsday and eight by tens and all that stuff. I go see them at the Mason jar in Arizona. Mm. I thought, Oh my God, I love these young people. They're adorable and they're <laughs> fabulous. And I, um, immediately connected with Kelly, the drummer and Mike, Mike Gilbert and with Jason. And um, Jason also is one of those charismatic characters. And I believed in him immediately. So I signed them. We made no place for disgrace somewhere in all of that. Um, uh, you know, Cliff, uh, was killed and metallica needed a bass player so at some point i recommended phil cavano from monster magnet who Mm. was then in blitz spear and i recommended um as did brian slagle uh we both recommended jason at the same time Mm -hmm. as we know again the rest is history Mm -hmm. i believe jason was with them 14 years those first couple of years they treated him like dirt yes um you know I, i mean i think part of that was they were young people still grieving it was over grieving. the loss I mean, of they, their brother.
1: I mean, they, you know, Cliff passed away in September of 86, and I think it was, what, November, they were in Japan with Jason. That's correct. I mean, correct. they didn't stop to take a breath, you know, That's let right. alone grieve. They
2: needed to do that, though. Yeah. They needed to. You know, when you're in your early 20s and something so devastating happens, yes, you grieve, but you know you can't just stay in that place and become stagnant. So they decided... We're going back on the road. And they did it beautifully.
1: And I think Cliff would be the last person who would have wanted them to stop.
2: Oh, of course. Of course. He was a generous spirit, a beautiful spirit. And he definitely watches over all of us all the time in the form of every time we see Mr. Burton, Ray Burton, at the Metallica Metallica gigs. And you know what? He's at all the Metallica gigs. He takes pictures with all the fans. He's an
1: extraordinary man. He was there at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, as he he deserved to be. Yes, of
2: course. Of course. Uh, Yes.
1: So, what year, Michael, did you leave Electro?
2: Oh gosh, this is so funny. Um, not funny, but you know, I am terrible with time. I was at Electra. I was at Geffen. I was at Electra. I was at Geffen. <laughs> I think yeah. somewhere in there for one minute, I was at a revived, revived, uh, uni records. And then I ended my A&R career 24 years later at a place called Palm Pictures, where I made the first Fozzie record, local H record with Jack Douglas and the speed dealer record that Jason Newstead produced.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, what did you just ask me? Uh, well, I'm trying to the timeline. I guess uh, timeline. I, 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 guess, I, I, guess, I guess. I guess. When guess you I guess. I guess. I was at
2: Electra the first time for seven years. So you. I were... left right before the Black
1: Album. That's that's where I was going. So you were Ride the yeah. Lightning, Master of Puppets, and Justice. Um,
2: uh, Justice 590 ADP, and yeah. then at some point while I was still there, we took on Kill 'Em All and released it on Elektra. That's right,
1: with the bonus track. Yes. And I, yes. I, I I do this on this podcast all the time, so listeners have heard this before. But I always think one of the fascinating things about my own relationship with Metallica is that my entry point was actually the Garage Days E P. That was oh, the Metallica release when I discovered so, so Metallica. much fun. Yeah, and, and yeah, of course. And then of course I went backwards from there. But I remember That's going okay. to buy And Justice for All at Karma Records in Greenwood on Street Date in nineteen eighty eight on the <laughs> on the date. Yes. Probably know, a Tuesday, of course. Yeah. And you know you know, Greg from Dillinger Escape Plan actually named uh-huh. a song after that street date there's a dillinger song that's called whatever that date is that justice came out um what can you tell me about a and and working on and, and the making of and justice for all i feel like that's a story that doesn't get told very often
2: yeah i couldn't really tell you too much of injustice for all at that point in time the band really liked to be in the studio on their own mm-hmm. um you know at some point uh, um We loved how Appetite for Destruction sounded. Mm -hmm. We hired Mike Klink. Unfortunately, that didn't work out. So in the end, their longtime friend engineer, uh, Fleming Rasmussen, came in. And I guess you could say saved the day. But I really couldn't tell you much more than that.
1: Yeah. Um, So you can't tell us where the bass went. That's always the question. Uh, You know (laughs) why?
2: I'm still looking for it, hon. I can't tell you. Nope. Nope. No can do.
1: So moving on from there, of course, at Geffen, uh, you know, all of us misfits fans know there was the, the long legal battle between Glenn Danzig and Jerry only. And then they work out an out of court settlement where the deal is, as I understand it, and you could, you might actually know more about this. My understanding of it was Glenn, you know, Jerry gave up going after the songwriting, and the publishing, Glenn kept the publishing and the masters to the old catalog. Jerry got the right to record and tour and perform as the misfits and they agreed to share the merchandise. They could each kind of do their that own is, thing. You're absolutely correct. I mean, can and, you tell? Uh, can, can you tell I'm a nerd? That's <laughs> okay. No, you're
2: absolutely correct. And, but yeah, no, you're exactly you're uh, exactly right about that. So uh, I don't know. There's really nothing more to say.
1: Yeah. So so when that happens, um, and suddenly Jerry and Doyle are free to resurrect the Misfits and do, of course, mm-hmm. what became known as the Resurrection Era. You know, I'm I'm very close with Andy, the singer from Blackville Brides, and one of the things that I found very interesting about him is the first time we met, he was, you know, 20, 21 years old and we bonded about the misfits and our love for the misfits. And, you know, I was, I sang for a misfits tribute band that I did with, with some friends and, um, you know, and, and Black Brides, uh, covered a misfits song. And what became clear to me as I got to know him, he, you know, when he was a kid, I mean, a kid, young, And he Mm -hmm. discovered the misfits famous monsters was a current release, you know, and of course I always think about Michael Graves as the new misfits, but you know, Andy opened me up to this idea that there's generations of misfits fans where American psycho and famous monsters were, that's the misfits they knew.
2: Well, of those two records, the better one, of course, is American Psycho. Uh, the songs are better. Um, you know, whatever. I, 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 don't ever, I don't ever listen to uh, the other record. Um, but yeah, you know, generations of people did start with those two records and work their way backwards to hopefully, uh, you know, walk among us and. Uh, yeah. All those all those other treats. <laughs> so, what was the. I mean, on, on vinyl.
1: I mean, obviously, Michael Olago, the guy who signed Metallica to Electra and then the guy who signs The Misfits to Geffen, there had to be some continuity there, right? Well, they
2: were a band that I had been going to see since 1982. Oh, wow. Uh, what, when I, you know, I we, I couldn't have my way and have the Glenn Danzig version. I thought, you know what? These guys need to be on a, a major label. So, you know, I signed them to uh, Geffen and
1: uh we made american psycho and wh- what was the lineup when you started working with them because i know they, they they tried to get you know david from the damned at one point and you know i know they were kind of different they were doing the christ the conqueror band right
2: they were all over the place yeah. uh, in other bands but uh for american psycho it was michael graves on vocal uh doyle on guitar. Dr. Chud on drums and Jerry on bass. Um, so did they have was, did they
1: have Michael Graves already when you signed them? Yes, yes, yes,
2: yes. Uh, my friend uh, Daniel Ray produced the record. Yeah. You know, Daniel is Daniel is well known for being in Masters of Reality. He currently plays with Ronnie Spector. He wrote Pet Cemetery for the Ramones yes. and dear friend also of 36 years. Uh, I had him produce the record, and I had Andy Wallace. Who we loved because of all the Slayer records yeah. he worked on or Alice in Chains. Uh, uh yes, oh yes. So uh Daniel Simple produced that roots. album and
1: uh Andy Wallace mixed that record. Yeah, I mean they had they had the dream team behind them. Daniel Ray, yeah. Andy Wallace, yeah. uh all yeah. this goodwill and love from all these bands that were big at the time. Uh you know, I'm sure Jerry's idea of where I mean, I interviewed Jerry around that time, and I remember he mm-hmm. was, he was I mean, such a great guy, such a nice guy, but obviously also very grandiose. I think in that moment about when and where he thought the Misfits should be when they came back was that mm-hmm. difficult. Well, to,
0: that, that's to okay.
1: Everybody, you know, that's okay. Everybody has an ego. We uh,
2: to this day. But specific to that time period, we worked very well together, never had any problems. So, you know, he could think whatever he wanted to think. We put out the record. We made videos, uh, did whatever it did. At some point I made, um, you know, I made a White Zombie record. I made mm-hmm. a Kane Roberts record. I made a Misfits record. And then I went back to Electra.
1: Yeah. And then and then back at Electra, were you working with Metallica again when you went back? Uh, someone else. Uh, well, because naturally,
2: because I wasn't there, another A&R person took over, and then uh, slowly I creeped in and just started working with them again, little bits and pieces.
1: You know, in the days of Alcoholica and and going out going out all night drinking with them. What's a night like with Metallica in 2017? With with clean and sober Michael Alago, clean and sober James Hetfield, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> wives, kids, uh, families. You know, what, yeah, what's, you know, what well, the hang's mostly, all about um, now. I,
2: I go I go to the shows and I just uh, we all hang out um, together and separately until we all leave the venue. That's the extent of the hanging out these days. I don't really hang out. I'm sober ten years, uh, so usually I go backstage after a show and talk to James and. Of course, Lars is the one who stays the longest and yes. talks to everybody. Yeah. Um, and then just have whatever words I have with um, Kirk. And, uh, you know, Rob Trujillo is a lovely person. Don't really have much of a relationship with him. Last time I talked with him was backstage and we talked about his uh, Jaco Pastorius documentary. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he's also just a wonderful guy. I mean, great player. So that's yeah. really the extent of the, um, the hanging out these days.
1: Yeah. And, I, you know, I was fascinated. I listened to an interview James did with uh, Joe Rogan on the Joe Rogan podcast. And they oh, got, wow. Okay. They got to talking about beekeeping. And how, uh, and James was like, your listeners don't want to hear about this. And Joe was like, you'd be surprised. Yeah, they do. And they end up talking for 30 minutes about um you know, bees. James, yeah, James has, He's a bee farmer, I guess, or what, I don't know what you.
2: Would oh, I that. love hearing that. Um, I exactly. have to. Yeah. I have to give him a phone call about that. Yeah, and
1: and listening to it, and maybe this just speaks to what a fan I am. But I was like, I want to get some bees. <laughs> like,
2: this is, okay, right, this is exciting. Don't don't go overboard. here.
1: <laughs> well, Michael, what uh, you know, so the movie is out. People can watch it on Netflix, iTunes. That's right. On who, Amazon. who the fuck is
2: that guy? The uh, fabulous journey of Michael Alago directed what, by Drew Stone
1: what obviously you still go out to shows you're going to see the dead boys tonight what uh mm-hmm. what fills your days now what do you what inspires you what are well you right this
2: on? minute I'm getting really hundreds of emails uh interview requests podcast
1: requests online camera
2: interviews so I'm just busy really doing all of that right now and I can't think about anything other than right this minute and being in this
1: moment yeah but it's all good Yeah, it's all good. And you're in art. Art is a big part of your life, too. I I take photographs.
2: Uh I take photographs of men who are tattooed and scarred. And uh, uh, I might work on a fourth book for next summer, 2018. But like I said, most of my focus right now is the film, Um, going out, seeing new bands, as always. Uh, And uh,
1: that's it. I love it.
2: It's Um. all it's all good. So. Thank you so much, Michael. For the thank you so today. much
1: for for taking the time. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna chase you around in a year or so for part two. Okay, great. <laughs> I can't wait. Absolutely. Uh, well, don't be a stranger, and uh, I won't. Thanks again. You can check out Who the Fuck is That Guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago on Netflix, Amazon, and iTunes. You can find me on Twitter at Ryan Downey, on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. You can find Speak and Destroy on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please give us a like, give us a follow, and most importantly, go into the iTunes store and give us a very nice, lovely, five-star positive review. It just takes a minute, just like a little sentence or something. I mean, come on, why not? Check out our previous episodes with great guests like M. Shadows from Avenged Sevenfold, Mark Morton of Lamb of God, Rob Flynn of Machine Head, Rob Halford of Judas Priest. Speak and Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. As always, you guys have been great. And I've been Ryan J. Downing.